It's really a privilege to be able to um, be here at a church on a Sunday in which we um, get to burn a mortgage. That's a nice thing. If you do that individually as a family, you really like that. It's really neat. And uh, um, just to think how, how many years ago this all, it all began. Um, you know, I don't know how many years, probably 15 or so years ago, the, the burden of this body was, you know, let's take a big risk, a faith risk. And now we get to see the fruition of that risk that you took many years ago. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. If you look on, on the screens, you see this, um, this uh, 40 days. Uh, 40 days is um, the, the last days of Jesus' life here on this earth. The Bible tells us in this verse in Acts that after his suffering, that's after he was crucified, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's the resurrection. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Generally speaking, as churches, after the resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we kind of just go on. And we, don't, we forget that that's not the end of Jesus' life here on earth. He had another month. And during this month, he did some pretty significant things. The most important thing he did is what is underlined here. He showed many convincing proofs that he was alive. And last week, we talked about some of those. There are about 12 recorded ones, uh, including many locations, hundreds and hundreds of people. And the reason is because this event is very significant. It's rooted and grounded in hist history. As I said last time, not only history recorded in the Bible, but also Jewish sources, Roman sources, many of them. And then what it did to change the people who were the, the, the ones who saw it is just stunning. The world has never seen such a rapid change. Um, so what we're going to look at is what happened during the next 40 days of Jesus' life. Now next week, this is going to be very Wyoming next week, because it's entitled Gone Fishing. Because <laughs> Jesus is going to go fishing uh, next week. That's what we're going to talk about. But today, we're going to address a subject that... Um, that many people might not think about a lot. And that is that recorded in the Bible are people and groups who objected to the resurrection of Jesus. That's recorded in the Bible. And we're going to look at the objections today. But back to a quote that I, I put on the screens last week. Raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> Nothing but antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. In other words, the evidence is rather clear and convincing. However, many people don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And then the obvious question is, why not? And so today we're going to deal with some of the why-nots. Um, a lot obviously happened in those three days. But one of the events the Bible records that happens within the three days of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection is what is known today as the Passover plot took place. The Passover plot, of course, we're going to see is a, a way to try to um, undermine the events that took place on Easter Sunday for obvious reasons, and I think we'll see them today. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the scriptures of four 
objections to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're all either mentioned explicitly or implicitly in the New Testament, and then we'll, we'll simply address them. That's what we'll do. And then we'll see what the implications for us may be. Now, the first objection is the most common and natural objection of all, which is resurrections don't happen. When was the last time you saw one of these? How, when did you last see somebody uh, come out of a casket? That doesn't happen in Sheridan? It does happen in Longmont. No, maybe not in, no, it doesn't happen in Longmont. It doesn't happen anywhere. We don't, uh, I shouldn't say anywhere. There are reports of this kind of thing, but honestly, resurrections don't happen. And so it's not a huge logical leap to go from the fact that we don't experience resurrections happening to say resurrections can't happen. Now that's normal, that's natural, and that is precisely what the people in the Bible thought too, because these people are normal, just like us. Let's look. When Jesus rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping, because they were sad. He had died. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, oh, they were thrilled with joy and stopped crying. That's not what the Bible says. They didn't believe it. Why not? Duh. Well, they're normal. You wouldn't believe it either. Someone came and, hey, it was just up at the funeral, at the funeral home there, and somebody got out of their casket. And you'd go, sure. You've been in Colorado too long with our marijuana laws. That's what you've been doing. Uh, you'd say, come on, this is ridiculous. That's what you'd say. You wouldn't believe it. But that's not the only one. Every single group didn't believe it. Nobody believed it. Look at Then they, when they, these are the women, this is the second appearance of Jesus. When these women came back from the tomb, they told these things to the 11, that's the disciples minus Judas, and to all the others. But they did not believe the women. Why? Their words seemed like nonsense. Sure they do. They would seem the same to us. Now this is from the two men who were on the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking, and, and they were talking to a third person who was walking with them, and they didn't know who it was. And this is what they said. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They told them that they had seen Jesus alive, and these two men said, they amazed us. We, we think they're crazy. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. This is not very believable. It's amazing. This now are the 10 disciples minus Thomas. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? They didn't believe it either. And by the way, Jesus had told them repeatedly that this is what was going to happen. They didn't believe it. If, if somebody said, hey, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again in three days, you go, yeah, okay. That go right over your head. You wouldn't believe it either. None of us would. They didn't either. These are normal human beings, just like we are. Then Jesus said, Look at my hands and feet. 
It's I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still did not believe, it was because of joy and amazement, he asked them. He knew they didn't believe. He said, okay, you think I'm a ghost. First of all, ghosts don't have bodies. But you don't believe me, I know that. So, okay, anyone got any Big Mac here? Do you have anything to eat? They gave, no, I guess not a Big Mac. It's one of those fish sandwiches. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He says, guys, I'm real. I'm real. But they didn't believe it. Of course not, because nor would we. Now, Thomas, my namesake, because I'm named Thomas, I'm named after him, called Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, what do people like myself, Thomas, do if someone said, hey, he's alive? Well, you do what Thomas did. Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas, he's the scientist. He says, I have to have empirical evidence. I don't believe pie in the sky, by and by stuff that you guys tell me. I don't believe that. I need evidence. So what does Jesus do? A week later, Jesus shows up. And he, Jesus says, Thomas, here I am. You said you wouldn't believe unless you had the evidence. You touched me. Here's my side. He pulls up his shirt, and there's a huge gash in his side. He says, Thomas, it's still fresh. You can touch it if you want. And Thomas says, I get it. I get it. And now sometimes later, Jesus was up somewhere, and he was with his disciples in Galilee on a mountain. And Jesus told them, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But even so, this is weeks later, they still doubted. Why? Because they're normal. They're people just like us. This is not something you, you readily believe. And so the first objection to the res resurrection of Jesus is the, res is the objection that, 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 generally speaking, in our world, we don't see resurrections from the dead. Therefore, it's hard for us to ever believe that this happens. Maybe you know the name Richard Dawkins. He's a well-known atheist. He debates a lot of people, and he writes extensively. This is what he wrote. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, and even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Well, that's a little demeaning, but that's okay. By the way, in our court of law, who do you pick to be on the jury? Is it only sophisticates who can be on juries? No, who do we put on a jury? Our peers, our peers, why? Because we believe our peers are more fair than sophisticates. And if you want probably the most innocent and unbiased view of all of a situation, who would you ask? Children, children, why? Because they don't have the agendas that all the rest of us tend to have. And here, Dawkins has the audacity to say, well, the people they read, they believe this because they're a bunch of insophisticates and children. I want to say, frankly, <laughs> those are the best people. Uh, in fact, the truth is you're not unsophisticates here. And there are many brilliant people who, who are, are Christians, 
all over this world to the tune of millions, and now we're over two point something billion. But unsophisticates, okay. But that's who we choose to judge. These men who saw Jesus alive, and women, were unsophisticates, if you want to call that. They were not the muckety-mucks that were, had their PhD degrees, but these are normal people. They are peers. And they, did, they were not inclined to believe it. The resurrection from the dead does not normally or commonly occur in, in human experience. That's why the Bible consistently records the disbelief of the original people who were informed about Jesus' resurrection. So how does the Bible respond to human disbelief? We saw the passage. Many convincing proofs. That's what God did. Now, uh, some of you here may have taken a philosophy class, and if you have, you probably studied David Hume, one of the great skeptics of the 18th century. And uh, he said, miracles are basically violations of the laws of nature. It's almost like he defines a miracle as something that can't happen. And so if you see a miracle happen, it didn't happen because it's been defined that it can't happen. Well, the truth is, um, and, and this is one of the great um, apologists defending Christianity in our world today. He said this, William Lane Craig is his name. There, there is, um, he said, miracles, properly speaking, lie outside the province of natural science. But that's not to say they contradict science. And this is um, Lee Strobel, the, the, the journalist of the Chicago Tribune who became a Christian. There is no contradiction between believing that men generally stay in their graves and that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, Christians believe both of these. We believe people generally stay in their graves, but Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because history tells us this, and it's very, very well-substantiated history. The first objection the Bible deals with is the objection of disbelief in the possibility of the resurrection. And the Bible answers it with many convincing proofs. The second objection is one that is very significant today because um, it is a, 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 an objection that is believed by more than a billion people in our world today. And that is the objection that Jesus didn't really die. And if Jesus didn't really die, then he wasn't really resurrected. Now this one we find um, is a, an objection that um, really does not appear until centuries after Jesus' time, but we need to deal with it anyways because it is the major objection in our world today. Jesus didn't really die. Here's what the Bible says. Joseph of Arimathea, remember he's a very wealthy man, on the, the ruling council, he was on the Supreme Court, if you will, of, Judy, of, of the Jews. He had a, he was a wealthy man, had his own big tomb, and he's the one who asked for the body of Jesus because he was a secret believer in Jesus. And then he put Jesus in his tomb. This is what it says. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now that's unusual because only a family member could ask for the body of a, of a capital criminal. And remember, Jesus was cru um, uh, crucified for treason. That's why they killed him. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. 
Summoning the centurion, you could put in the place of centurion here, uh, the person who, who uh, confirms the death of someone on the cross. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So certainly we know Pilate and the centurion, the Romans, knew that Jesus was dead. Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. During crucifixion, people would sometimes linger for two and three days on a cross. It was one of the most painful ways you could ever die, and that was the purpose. The purpose of, per of crucifying a person was twofold. One, that it was so torturously painful, and second, it would be put in a place where the city could see all these people you know, writhing in pain as a, a lesson to them, don't do what they did or this is what you'll get. Typically, people would last for two days on a cross, sometimes three. But since it was the Passover time and they didn't want to defile themselves, they, then they decided, let's break their legs. If you broke the legs of a person on a cross, they died almost immediately because they could no longer get a breath. <gasps> so they, they died, they couldn't get any, any oxygen. All of this is confirmed by medical evidence. So they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came to and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, which is one of the medical indications that a person is dead. So here now we have massive confirming evidence from the Romans that Jesus was in fact dead. Now this is uh, Quintilian. He is of course roughly from the time of Jesus in the first century. And this is what he says. Quintilian corroborates that this procedure, that's the blood and the water, was often used to validate the crucifixion victims in his document. This is well substantiated by medical evidence from that time and to today. Jesus was what you would call certifiably dead. And there are no historical objections to this for centuries, none, zero. However, one of the theories that has come up in, in past the first century was the theory that Jesus didn't really die. He simply went unconscious. They put him into the tomb and then uh, in that tomb, he, he revived, and then he pushed open that multiple-ton multiple stone, came out as if he was the strong conqueror, I guess a superhero, and everyone just thought he had died, but he had never really died. Now that is so ridiculous that it doesn't really bear much thought, but that is what people today, some people think. Here's the swoon theory. Claims that Jesus only fainted on the cross and appeared to be dead. Then he awoke and recuperated in the damp coldness of the tomb and fully recovered. That's, um, that's a, a, a theory because obviously in our world, people don't rise from the dead. And so you, if, if, if the evidence is very clear that Jesus was resurrected, you've got to come up with some theory that, it, that he did it. And this is one of the common theories that you might hear today. Um, this is in the Quran. The, the, the holy book of the Muslim people. This is Surah 157 and one, uh, 4, 157, 158. 
and for claiming that they, that's they there is, is Jew, the Jews, and for claiming that the Jews killed the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God. In fact, they never killed him. They never crucified him. They were made to think that they did. All factions who are disputing in this matter are full of doubt concerning this issue. They possess no knowledge. They only conjecture. For certain, they never killed him. Instead, God raised him to him. God is almighty, most wise. Now this, um, um, of course, Muhammad uh, wrote this in around the year 620, around that time. This is 600 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And here you find a, a, a rather stri striking um, revision of history 600 years later. And it says, this is the main thing about Islam. And by the way, if you know anything about Islam, I've taught other religions. Islam teaches that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he is the Messiah, that he performed miracles, most of the same things we believe. However, the heart and the core of Jesus' life is his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's what everything pointed to, and that's the very piece that now is revised. They said he was not crucified. And there are two ways they view this. Number one is that he didn't really die. That's an alternative of the swoon theory. And secondly, that somebody took his place. The common understanding in Islam is that Judas took Jesus' place on the cross. He made Judas to look like Jesus, but it wasn't Jesus. Either Judas or Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross. They say it's one of those two who took his place. Well, do you see why I bring this up? Because here's one of the great objections, and they say the number of Islam, Muslim people in our world today is 1.5 billion. And this is at the core of their teaching. No, Jesus was not crucified, he wasn't resurrected, because he didn't really die. Though the evidence, there's no evidence historically at all for hundreds of years about this at all, just kind of erupted many, many years later, and many people um, believe it. This Gerd Ludemann is not a, a, a proponent of Christianity. This is what he wrote. The fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable, despite hypotheses of a pseudo-death or a deception which are sometimes put forward. The need not, it need not be discussed further here. And he is no, this is not someone who's a Christian. This is someone who looked at the evidence and said, it's indisputable. There's no question about this. And there is no question about it from any scholar, even some Muslim scholars. They say, you just got it wrong. It's wrong. Jesus really did die. Here's a, a man named Nabil Qureshi. He was the one who wrote the book, um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He's a, a Pakistani Muslim who became a Christian. This is what he wrote. The basis of any historical case must be the primary sources. And in this case, this case, the sources are unanimous, diverse, early, and plentiful. Jesus died by crucifixion. For more than 100 years, no record even suggests that Jesus survived death on the cross or otherwise circumvented his execution. This coheres well with what we know of crucifixion practices in that there is no person in recorded history who ever survived a full Roman crucifixion. We have zero. Jesus is not the first. So the second objection is that Jesus didn't really die, but there's no evidence at all that that's true. The evidence is overwhelming from all sources. Most of these do not believe in Christianity at all, that he really did die of crucifixion. But 
Here's probably the main objection. If, in fact, Jesus was resurrected, other religions are in jeopardy. And the main religion that's in jeopardy, of course, is Judaism at that time. Because if, in fact, Jesus did die on the cross and was raised from the dead, that is strong substantiation that he was, in fact, the Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied. And they did not want to agree to that. So what will they do? Let's see. This is recorded in Acts. First of all, the mindset. The people who, the ones who killed Jesus technically were the Romans. The ones that put the Romans up to kill Jesus were the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the keepers of the temple. They're the priests. This is from Acts. It records some things about the Sadducees. You need to hear, first of all, their mindset. Here's what it says. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. This is some months after the resurrection. While they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, why is that a problem? Well, the problem is because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that any resurrection could take place. We find Paul now is going to take advantage of this some years later. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, the Sadducees kept the temple, the Pharisees were the keepers of the synagogues. One temple, hundreds of synagogues. Um, were Sadducees and other Pharisees called out in the, in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish Supreme Court. My brothers, Paul said, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's like a, a dispute broke out in the Supreme Court of the United States between the liberals and the conservatives. That's what it was. And the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Paul was a Pharisee. So the first thing you need to know is that the Sadducees, who were the main ones who put Jesus forward to be executed by the Romans, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So if, in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead, their system is kaput. They don't want that. You wouldn't want it if you had a system and then all of a sudden something completely, some fact comes forward and your whole system is destroyed. You wouldn't want that. Well, they didn't want it either. So here's what they did. This is what they did on Saturday. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, that's Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, interestingly, they believed Jesus, but his disciples did not. His disciples, Jesus had told them over and over again, I will rise from the dead. And when he did, they go, what are you doing? The Pharisees, they did believe Jesus. So he, they said this Pilate, so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. 
So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. By the way, these guards, if they were derelict in their duty, they were executed. How they executed them is they took off all their clothes and they started the fire with which they burned them alive. That's what they did. So they knew if you were derelict in your duty as a Roman guard, especially in this situation, you were dead meat. So it's a very, very significant problem. So they are not going to let anyone dissuade. They're not going to let anyone steal the body. Let's see what happens. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. The tomb was opened and the body was gone. They didn't know what had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. We call it hush money, telling them, you are to say, Oh, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So that's the first thing they did. It's called the, the stolen body theory. The theory says that Jesus' followers stole the body from the tomb. The problem with this is... Uh, it, not only does it not make any sense, but if the Romans stole the body and this resurrection idea was out there um, being uh, passed around, they would simply produce the body and the whole rumor was gone. If the disciples had stolen the body as they proposed here, um, none of them would die and all of them, but with one exception, was killed for their belief in the resurrection. They would transform people because of the resurrection. Actually, this plot... The Passover plot is the main the way that, that the resurrection of Jesus is historically substantiated. It worked against them. It, has, it bears no weight at all. But the problem is that there are many people in our world today who believe that he was not. Um, he, was, he was not raised from the dead, nor was he crucified. There's one last objection, and this objection is that the resurrection doesn't square with our worldview. The truth of life is that all of us have a worldview. We have a way that we look at the world. And if, in fact, some facts do not agree with our worldview, generally, we will discount those facts. That's how we operate as human beings. Seldom will we change our worldview. Now, we're going to see now the last objection is when in the world in which Jesus lived, people had a worldview. Their worldview was largely derived from the Greek world. Remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. In Israel at the time of Jesus, the people spoke Greek. Why? Because that's the influence of Alexander the Great when he conquered this area in the 300s, 300 years earlier. So though the Romans are the overlords, the people speak Greek. And the culture is largely Greek. And let's see now what we find. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Corinthians comes from Corinth. Corinth is Greece, south of Athens. In the time that this was written by the Apostle Paul, Corinth was the largest city in Greece. Athens was number two. Corinth is the main city. And Paul writes, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So in the church at Corinth, because it's Greece, there were people who said there can't be a resurrection from the dead. That is, the resurrection of a body from the dead. Why not? 
because they're Greeks. It's called Platonism. It comes from Plato. Plato was the one who believed in dualism. And, and the Greek mindset was that matter is bad by definition, spirit is good by definition. And the goal of life is to die, and when you die, you get rid of the prison, which is your body, and then your spirit lives forever. But here now, these Christians are preaching the resurrection of the body. Ah! Why would you want that? The goal of life is to get rid of your body. That's their worldview. So now, into that worldview, you have this message about Jesus was raised from the dead in a body. It contradicts their worldview, and they don't know what to do with it. Here's, here's what it says. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has pointed. He has given proof to all this by to all men by raising him from the dead. This is what Paul was speaking to a group of people in Athens. So that's all he says. God gave proof that what he said is true about Jesus by God raised him from the dead. And everyone cheered, right? No. When they heard this, the Athenians heard about the resurrection of the dead and they sneered. They didn't cheer, they sneered. Why? I mean, if, if I heard somebody has been certifiably proof raised from the dead, I'd go, yay! They go, Nuh. Why? Because it contradicted their worldview. You don't want somebody to rise from the dead because you're trying to get rid of your body. They sneered, but some of them said, eh, hey, I want to hear some more about this. So that's a worldview. Now, how does the Bible deal with this? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote, he died, he was killed in the, in the 60s AD. But this is written by John. He's the only follower of Jesus who lived, to our knowledge, to old age. All the others were executed. He's the only one. He writes this around the year 90 AD. This is 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And by that time, the, 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 the worldview of his world was overwhelmingly Platonic. They believed that, that the spirit was, was good, the body was evil, and they did not want a resurrection. So how does the Bible approach that? This is what John wrote around 90 AD. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word refers to Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh. Now, the word flesh is a strong word. It means um, this, like a body. The word took on a body and made his dwelling. He lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is going to try to emphasize in his writings that Jesus was a real human being. You see, in the early church, they did not deny the deity of Jesus. They denied the humanity of Jesus. That's the first heresy. It's not his deity, it's his humanity. Why? Because their worldview would not let them believe that Jesus had a real body. Well, here's what happens. Here's what John writes. This is how he starts his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He goes out of his way in all of his writings to say, no, he had a material body just like we have. 
There are all kinds of objections to the resurrection, and all of these have been addressed, and people throughout time have held to all of them. It's a legend that they had hallucinations. Well, people, multiple people of this kind do not have the such things. The body was stolen. It was the wrong tomb. He swooned. Oh, it's only spiritual. It's not historical. They made a mistake or some other kind of thing. All of these have been addressed. We live in a society today which is called postmodern. Postmodernism is means we've we've gone past the modern culture where science was king, and now we believe most anything. I remember I was a teacher at um, Front Range Community College in in Longmont, Colorado. I taught philosophy of religion there, and one of the topics I had to teach on was the, the resurrection. We had to teach about reincarnation and the, the the materialist view, and of course the resurrection of Jesus. I just loved being able to do that. But what stunned me is by the end of my teaching, I taught there for four semesters, I never found anyone who didn't believe in the resurrection. Never one. Because their mindset was, well, if that's what you want to believe, have at it. I believe in doorknobs, you believe in resurrection. I believe in light bulbs, I believe in crystals. In our world today, we believe in anything, whether it's contradictory or not. We have to kind of throw away our minds. Postmodernism believes all truth is relative, of course, except for the statement. <laughs> There's a contradiction in postmodernism. To say all truth is relative is a, is a contradiction. You can't have that because you've just made a, 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 an absolute statement. That's the world we live in today. There are all kinds of objections. So, I, and this is the last time here we'll deal with the subject of Easter. And so where does this all take us? I'm going to first cite Charles Colson. You may not be able to read that, but I'm going to read it for you. Charles Colson was the Watergate criminal who went to prison for, for his part in the Watergate scandal. He was one of President Nixon's um, uh, henchmen and in prison, and thereafter he became a Christian. This is what he wrote. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if it were not true. Watergate, what he was a part of, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. They all caved, all of them. So you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. You can't do that. I know. We had a lot at stake. We had the President of the United States at stake, and we couldn't last three weeks. We all caved under the pressure. And these people for 40 years, not a single one, everyone tortured and killed, you're out of your mind. Second, this is Rabbi Gamaliel we hear from. This is the, the rabbi who taught the Apostle Paul. They were in a, a setting where they, they tried to figure out, what, what should we do with this Jesus? And this is what Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of his time in Judaism, said. Leave these Christians alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. If it is from God, 
you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That's Paul's tutor who wrote that. And that's recorded in the Bible. And I end with the most important of all, the final statement on the resurrection. And this is the most succinct statement in the whole Bible of what the good news of Christianity is. If you had to make one statement, only one, about what Christianity is, this is it. Written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's it. Christianity is basically news, and that's the news. Someone knows our plight, knows our sin, and took the penalty for us. Jesus died for our sins. And what did he do? He took all of our sin on himself, and he gave us, that's what grace means, undeserved favor. He says, do you want a gift you know you don't deserve? I'll give it to you freely. What you have to believe is that I died for your sins. I took your penalty, and I was raised again the third day to open up the gates of heaven to all who come in simply by believing. That's the good news. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the fact that you've grounded our faith, our simple faith in some things that happened on this planet that we never saw. Thank you that you told us so much about it. Thank you for how it's changed people's lives for now 2,000 years. And I pray that you'd continue to change our lives too, that we would become people of grace and goodness. I pray, Heavenly Father, for any here today who might not know Jesus, that they would come to know him and by faith walk as we do simply following what you have done on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.